thank you very much. I hope this works. Uh, I hope you will not be disappointed. Today I decided to be maybe even a little bit simplistic, political in the first half of the talk and then gradual, gradually to approach the theoretical topic, which for me, I was avoiding it for a long time. It is crucial. Namely, what to do today with Marxist theory, especially with what is its core critique of political economy. I mean, I'm tired of people who including myself, who all the time refer to Marx, capital, and so on, but don't approach head-on this key problem. My God, Marx didn't write a treatise on cultural criticism, etc. It was meant to be a book analyzing actual trends of capitalist society, and so on, and so on. So, what to do, or can we do anything at all, at all, to make it of any use today, and how to do it? I would like to begin with an at the anecdotal level, just pure masochism, uh, but with this then I will use this to approach my starting point, ideology today. Maybe some of you already heard about it, like in the last issue of the New Republic, there is a delicious detailed attack on me. The title is The Deadly Jester, the subtitle then tells it all, the most despisable philosopher in the world. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's really, I think, a sign, one of the signs, that the class struggle in economy and in life is aggravating itself, because, no, quite maybe, I mean, I, I'm not even sure if I will answer it. But nonetheless, how should I put it, the degree of pure personal aggressivity and of faking quotes and so on, reach a breathtaking level here. So I advise you even to read it as a kind of a test, I mean. If you read it and you will say, because I think the guy is counting on this, for you to say, okay, maybe there are some manipulations here or there with quotes, but all in all, my God, so much stuff, you know. You usually again have this stupid proverb, like when there is a, a smoke, there must be fire. So something must be, if you are tempted by this, then, well, then, nice to... <laughs> Look, just the culminating quote towards the end. I will just read it, then give you the key to it. I quote, in, in defense of lost causes, again paraphrasing Badiou, Zizek writes, quote from me, allegedly. To put it succinctly, the only true solution to the Jewish question is the final solution, their annihilation because Jews are the ultimate obstacle to the final solution of history itself, to the overcoming of divisions in an all-encompassing unity and flexibility. End of quote from me. Then the text go on, <coughs> goes on. I hasten to add that Zizek descends from Badiou's vision to this extent. <coughs> he believes that Jews, quote from me, resisting identification with the state of Israel, the Jews of the Jews themselves, the worthy successors to Spinoza, and what quote, deserve to be exempted from this total annihilation on account of their, again, quotation marks, quote from me, fidelity to their messianic impulse. I mean, it's just breathtaking. If some of you read some of my work, you may even remember where this first quote comes. I'm not paraphrasing but you, but I'm just resuming, describing the position of Jean-Claude Milner, in his uh, book, uh, let us Criminal Tendencies of the Democratic Europe. Uh, Milner's thesis is a very radical Zionist one. It is that the modern democratic Europe, today, 
European Union and so on is, uh, he uses this Clausewitz metaphor, a prolongation of Hitler of Nazism with other means. That is the same project that, it, that anti-Semitism is not a marginal contingent feature emerging here and there. It's inscribed into the very project of European Union. Jews are the principal obstacle. They have to be eliminated. This is what, how Milner perceives modern democratic Europe. Now, in a way which totally goes beyond my comprehension, this guy Kirsch, which means Cherry, incidentally, <laughs> this guy uh, uh, then, uh, uh, claims that I, with sympathy, paraphrase here, but you, but that I have only one provisor, you know, he tries to be honest all the time, like, no, he doesn't claim this. My provisor is that Jews should be killed, annihilated, but not all. Those who are critical of Israel, they should be left alive. And then he goes on simply quoting me when I simply describe this, the, Jew, the position of those Jews who are critical towards Israel. And of course, this has nothing to do with Milner. I do this in a totally different part of the book and so on and so on. And again, the whole, the whole it's absolutely breathtaking. The whole text is like this. What are these kind of attacks and indication of? Because it's not only this. It's also, if I may compare myself with big figures, that I was shocked by the brutal violence, for example, lately in the United States, is almost becoming a pariah of the attacks on Jimmy Carter, ex-president, because of his book, Palestina, uh, I don't know about democracy, whatever, not apartheid or whatever. Just because the book compares what the state of Israel is doing on the West Bank to apartheid. In very soft terms, he doesn't claim <coughs> they are like Nazis who want to eliminate, uh, kill, kill the Palestinians. Just he sees traces of apartheid policy. What is going on here? I think what we should directly address question is where do we really defer? I think we defer in the very basic topography, <coughs> cognitive mapping of the situation. Of course, today's field is vaguely, vaguely, abstractly uh, uh, divided into, let's call it, liberal center, populist right, and whatever remains of the left. But how do we relate these three terms to each other? The old Marxist thesis, elaborated, elaborated among others by Walter Benjamin and so on, is every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution. And I think this insight not only still holds today, but is more pertinent than ever today. Liberals like to point out similarities between left and right extremisms. Hitler's terrors and camps, concentration camps imitated Bolshevik terror. The Leninist party is today alive in Al-Qaeda, as we learn from Simon Critchley. Yes, but what does all this mean? It can also be read the way I would have read it, as an indication of how fascism literally replaces, takes the place of the leftist revolution. Its rise is the left's failure, but simultaneously a proof that there was a revolutionary potential, dissatisfaction which the left failed to properly mobilize. And I think exactly the same thing, thing holds for today's so-called, by some people, not by me, Islamo-fascism. 
Is the rise of radical Islamism not exactly correlative to the disappearance of the secular left in Muslim countries? For example, today when Afghanistan is portrayed as the utmost Islamic fundamentalist country, who still remembers that 30, 40 years ago it was a country before even the Soviet invasion? Do you remember? Okay, you don't, but some of us do. That it was a country with strong secular tradition up to a powerful communist party which took power there independently of the Soviet Union. So it wasn't, whatever this means, a fu fundamentalist country at all. The king was a kind of a enlightened pro-Western despot, like a softer version of the Shah of Iran trying to enlighten the people and so on. It was again one of the least fundamentalists of, of the Islamic countries. Where did this secular tradition disappear. So you see my point that Afghanistan is not that they are the backwards country literally through their very inclusion into being drawn into the global politics they were fundamentalized as it were. Mm -hmm. It's not that it was in their nature. On the opposite if, okay I use this nonsensical term, in their nature that's to say in their historical tradition of the last decades, if anything they were absolutely uh, the opposite. In Europe, exactly the same goes for Bosnia today. Back in the 70s and 80s, Bosnia and Herzegovina, as ex-Yugoslav Republic, was multiculturally the most interesting, alive, cinema school, unique style of rock music, and so on and so on. In today's Bosnia, today's Bosnia, there effectively are strong fundamentalist forces. Unfortunately, it was reported probably also here in the media, for example, a couple of months ago, I think, there was a gay parade in Sarajevo, which was violently attacked by some Wahhabis, whatever, so-called Islamic fundamentalists. But, again, the main reason of this regression is the desperate situation of the Muslim Bosnians in, 92, in the 92-95 war when they were basically abandoned by the Western powers. So again, this fundamentalization of Bosnia is strictly the result of Bosnia being drawn into global politics. It's, this is the true tragedy. It, it's as if all this small country, the price they pay for becoming the topic of headlines is fundamentalization. Or even in the United States, I quote often in my books that modest but very readable, nice book by Thomas Frank, you know, what, what happened in Kansas. He deals with the same paradox. Kansas, as one of the states, of, you know, over the rainbow, which was, uh, which was it's really the U.S. version of Afghanistan. Till 30 years ago, till 30 years ago, Kansas was the bedrock of practically all American radical leftist populism. It was the most pro-Roosevelt Republic, and so on and so on. That, the disappearance of the left meant that it's now the bedrock of Christian fundamentalism. This should give us something to think. This, for me, empirically, if you want, confirms that today's fundamentalism is not an independent phenomenon which we as good liberals must fight. No, the true thing, the problem to focus on is why it is precisely the progress of liberal capitalism, new global order, which which re-fundamentalizes, as it were, some countries. Now, what are the political conclusions to be drawn from this? The most catastrophic one is the one drawn by some leftists, but let's call them Zionist Marxists, like Moishe Poston, whom I otherwise 
respect deeply for being one of the few who tries to seriously approach the topic of what would be critique of political economy today. I will refer to him much later today. But nonetheless, I am a little bit terrified by his political conclusion, which is, now I'm in a simplified way, presenting to you his reasoning. It's that since every crisis which opens up a space for radical left also gives rise to anti-Semitism, it is better for us to support successful capitalism and hope there will be no crisis. Like you know, whenever there is a crisis, bad things happen, populist, right-wing temptation, so let's hope there is no crisis. Brought to its conclusion, this reasoning implies ultimately that, and that's for me the true danger. They don't say it openly, but they really mean it. And this is why, nonetheless, I consider it was worth mixing with Bernard Levy there, because he didn't dare to say this publicly, but privately. Just before, I asked him and he that for him, anti-capitalism is as such today anti-Semitic. That's the idea. Every radical questioning of capitalism is disqualified as proto-fascist, incipiently anti-Semitic radicalism. This is, in what sense, the terribly wrong, I think, thesis of Bernard-Henri Levine, his new book, Left in the Dark Times, is that the 21st century anti-Semitism will be progressive or none. Because, again, the underlying thesis is that every anti-capitalism is incipiently anti-Semitic. This is ideologically, from the standpoint of theory of ideology, a wonderful invention. You take the most horrible crime, to put it naively, of the 20th century, Holocaust, and then you use it to disqualify in advance every questioning of the, of the system, quite openly today. Whenever, when you question uh, uh, capitalism too radically, they say, oh, you already play anti-Semitic cards, and so on and so on. Uh, so, back to my basic point. The difference between liberalism and the radical left is that, although they refer to the same three elements, liberal center, populist right, radical left, they locate them in a different within a different topology. <coughs> For the liberal center, radical left and right are the two forms of appearance of the same totalitarian excess. While for the left, the only true alternative is the one between itself and the liberal mainstream, with the populist radical right as nothing but the symptom of liberalism's inability to deal with the leftist threat. So I think that more than ever, we should insist on what Max Horkheimer of the Frankfurt School said 70 years ago. Those who do not want to talk critically about liberal democracy and its noble principles should also keep quiet about religious fundamentalism. You know, Horkheimer said, those who do not want to talk about capitalism critically should keep quiet about fascism. We should repeat the same today. One should insist that the Middle East conflict between the State of Israel and the Arabs is an emphatically false conflict, even if we will all die because of it. It is a conflict which mystifies the true issues. I think we should, again, truly insist on it. Here, resistance begins, not in taking sides, but in rejecting the very basic cognitive mapping. I reject the very claim that the conflict between 
liberal democracy and fundamentalism is the main conflict today? I think, no, this is the conflict inherent to the existing order based on the disappearance of the third term. We should insist more than ever that something is missing. And precisely because something is missing, the left, this conflict appears. In other words, we should, in a shapelessly old-fashioned Marxist Lukács way, return to the category of totality. People are horrified when you say this today, no one should adopt the position of totality. But let me use this to elaborate a little bit. What does Hegel or the good Marxist tradition really mean by totality? It's not this idea of every phenomenon which may appear eccentric, excessive in itself, find, finds its proper role within a harmonious totality. It's the exact opposite. What Hegel means by totality is that when you observe a certain whole, like all of it, a certain system, you should always include into it, that is to say, consider, <laughs> interpret as its inherent part, also what may appear as its excess, its external obstacle or whatever. This is totality. Totality is not a high, high reconciled whole where everything finds in place. Totality is always contradictory, inconsistent. Totality doesn't mean today's totality is a harmonious capitalist order which is then uh, 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 disturbed from outside by, I don't know what threats, third uh, uh, world, uh, populist, right-wing, uh, terrorist threat. No, it means precisely the totality of all of this as part of the same global mechanism. So again, when Hegel says das Ganze ist das Wahre, the whole is the true, he doesn't mean an idealized harmonious totality. It's precisely that the whole is truly whole when it includes its symptoms, its unintended consequences which betray its untruth, and its non-truth. Symptoms are never just secondary failures or distortions of the basically sound symptoms. They are always indicators that there is something rotten, antagonistic, inconsistent, in the very heart of the system. This is again why all the anti-Hegelian rhetorics, which insists on how Hegel's totality misses the details which stick out and ruin the balance of the totality, miss the point. The space of the Hegelian totality is the very space of the interaction between the abstract whole and the details that elude its grasp. And again, it is crucial to apply this to today's well, we see, for example, in the struggle between liberalism and fundamentalism, how they form a totality. In their very apparent radical antagonism, they form a totality. <coughs> and the point is to question this totality. And that's difficult to do. Why? Because we are, I claim now, as the result of this meltdown and other recent events, we are self-obviously living in an era of open revitalization of ideology. Not even ideology in the sense of the 90s, this anonymous ideology, but open ideology. So, uh, this, I think, these questions, what, how do we perceive phenomena, how does liberalism relate to fundamentalist threat, <coughs> are crucial points of ideological struggle today. How is this struggle structured?
Permit me one old quote from Marx. In his poverty of philosophy, Marx wrote that bourgeois ideologists love to historicize. <coughs> every social, religious, cultural, foreign, historical, contingent, relative, every forum except their own. There was history, but now there is no history. A quote from Marx. Economists have a singular method of procedure. There are only two kinds of institutions for them, artificial and natural. The institutions of feudalism are artificial, those of bourgeoisie are natural. When the economists say that present-day relations, the relations of bourgeois production are natural, they imply that these are the relations in which wealth is created and productive forces developed in conformity with the laws of nature. Thus, there has been history, but there is no longer any. End of quote. Uh, first, I cannot resist here a very evil remark. Do we not find echoes of the same position in today's, let's call it, discourse theory anti-essentialist historicism, from Ernesto Laclau to Judith Butler? Just for them, the, pre- the non-historical present is precisely the present of uh, universalized contingency. Don't you have this impression when you read, for example, Judith Butler's gender travel, that now we reach the state that basically we acknowledge everything is contingent, everything is historicized, but this very fact brings us to some kind of, how to put it, eternal present of relativization of everything where the proper historical tension is lost. Which is why, on, with Ernesto Laclau basically the same, which is why, in order to continue their struggle, they have to exaggerate and all the time how essentialism is not just that, it's still here, patriarchal authority is still here, and so on and so on. Uh, only in this way can they avoid asking the very simple question, what if their historicism, in the sense of for Judith Butler, every sexual identity is a historical contingent product, for Ernesto Laclau, every political identity is a contingent discursive product, to ask the question, but what are the specific historical conditions of this very view of radical contingency historicity? This is the crucial question which they don't ask. Which is why, again, they must, with the true spirit of the best of KGB, uh, <laughs> develop this, uh, this discerning police procedural activity of, ah, you think you are already within contingency, but not, you know, the, 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 the essentialist enemy is lurking hidden everywhere. So again, I think that even the universal historicism, everything is relative, contingent, we can reconstruct it, is the very form of post-historical thought today. But, back to my basic point about Marx's economy. Remember the quote from The Poverty of Philosophy. My point is, replace feudalism with socialism, and exactly the same holds for today's apologists of liberal democratic capitalism. Their thesis is, there was history, as long as in the 20th century capitalism was fighting socialism, now there is none, because we all have to admit the Fukuyama dream, capitalism is the only rational, the least bad order. if you don't believe me, I would like to present to you a guy whom I was glad to discover because it's very rare that one finds ideology at its purest. And I think he's worth reading because he really stands for today's re-ideologization at its purest. <coughs> a French popular, popularizer economist, Guy Sorman. 
I mean, he really, as it were, openly articulates what others mostly only imply. Recently, this guy gave an interview in Argentina with the title which tells it all, this crisis, referring to the ongoing economic uh, financial meltdown, this crisis will be short enough. This title indicates that Sorman fulfills the basic demand that ideology has to meet with regard to the ongoing financial meltdown, to renormalize the situation. Things may appear harsh, but the crisis will be short. It is just part of the normal cycle of creative destruction through which capitalism progresses. Or, as Sorman put it in one of his texts, I quote, creative destruction is the engine of economic growth. That's his explanation. Another quote, this ceaseless replacement of the old with the new, driven by technological innovation and entrepreneurialism, itself encouraged by good economic policies, brings prosperity, though those displaced by the process who find their jobs made redundant can understandably object to it. Like, you must understand, you may be the victim, but globally, that's the way of progress. Now, I'm well aware of that, and this is what always characterizes ideology, that it always uses the apparently mutually exclusive procedures. This renormalization of the crisis coexists without any problems with its opposite. The panic raised by the authorities in order to create a shock among the white public. You remember the, the uh, George Bush reaction, which a friend of mine made a nice analysis claiming how Bush, when he reacted to the meltdown, used, used almost the same term as in the reaction to September 11th. It's a national crisis. Let's put away all partisan divisions, the very fundamentals of our social order, of our American way of life are, are threatened. And so, of course, then, this is how people are made to accept of the obviously unjust solutions. So back to Sorman. His starting premise is that in the last decades, economy finally became a fully tested science. His Hitler is that if we take, for example, East and West Germany, we have an almost laboratory experiment. The same nation cut into two, one system was tested in one part, the other in the second part, the result was clear, which is the failure, which is the success. So, no ambiguity. But is economy really a science? Does the present crisis not demonstrate that as one of the, as one of the participants put it, no one really knows what to do? Now, Sorman's answer is here really surprising. While he admits that market is full of irrational behavior and reactions, his medicament is not even psychology, but neuroeconomics. Quote, economic actors tend to behave both rationally and irrationally. Laboratory work has demonstrated that one part of our brain bears blame for many of our economically mistaken short-term decisions, <laughs> while another part is responsible for decisions that make economic sense, and usually taking a longer view. Just as the state protects us from Akerlof asymmetry, some technical term, by forbidding insider trading, should it also it should also protect us from our own irrational impulses. So, Sorman's conclusion, this doesn't mean that we need excessive state 
regulation, but nonetheless that neuroeconomics should be applied as a purely positive science to counteract irrational market behavior, which is for him, is purely psychological, nothing to do with economic politics properly. For him, the recent meltdown is ultimately a purely psychological phenomenon which should be treated, again, not even normal crowd psychology, but neuroeconomics. <laughs> With this happy twin rule of economic science supplemented, supplemented by neuroeconomics, then we can get rid of ideology. For example, for Sorman, Marx, the work of Marx, quote, can be described as a materialist rewriting of the Bible and so on and so on. Rarely was the function of ideology described in clearer terms. Namely, as the task to defend the existing system against any serious critique, legitimizing it as a direct expression of human nature. If you don't believe me, here is the key passage from Sorma. He's not a nobody in France, in Spanish countries, in, Latin, in France, for example, he is the official economic advisor of, of now of Sarkozy and so on. Quote, an essential task of democratic governments and opinion makers when confronting economic cycles and political pressure is to secure and protect the system that has served humanity so well and not to change it for the worse on the pretext of its imperfection. Still, this lesson is doubtless one of the hardest to translate into language that public opinion will accept. The best of all possible economic systems is indeed imperfect. Whatever the truth uncovered by economic science, the free market is finally only the reflection of human nature, itself hardly perfectible. End of quote. So we have again the position at its purest here, that with capitalism, finally, we found a social system which fits human nature. This has a certain human <coughs> cost, because, again, sometimes people have to be have to accept to lose their job and so on, and especially because our own brain, its neurostructure, is not adapted to it. But, again, as he put it very nicely, the main task of ideology is to prevent people questioning the fundamentals of the system. Such ideological legitimization perfectly exemplifies Alain Badiou's wonderful formula of the basic paradox of enemy propaganda. The enemy propaganda fights something of which it is itself not aware, something for which it is structurally blind, not the actual counterforces, political opponents, but the possibility which is imminent to a situation. The possibility, that is to say, the utopian revolutionary emancipatory potential. A quote from Badiou. Uh, he said this in his seminar on Plato on the 13th of February this year. You can find it on, it's available online. Quote, I translated it from French, of course. The goal of all enemy propaganda is not to annihilate an existing force. This function is generally left to police forces. But rather to annihilate an unnoticed possibility of the situation. This possibility is also unnoticed by those who conduct this propaganda, since its features are to be simultaneously immanent to the situation and not to appear in it. End of quote. This is why the enemy propaganda against radical emancipatory politics is by definition cynical, not in the simple sense of not believing its own words, but at a much more basic level. 
It is cynical precisely and even more insofar as it does believe its own words, since its message is a resigned conviction that the world we live in, even if not the best of all possible worlds, is the least bad one, so that any radical change can only make it worse. And again, as always in an effective propaganda, this normalization can be combined without any problem with its opposite, reading the economic meltdown in religious terms. Benedict, the Pope, you remember, was expeditious in capitalizing on the financial crisis along these lines. He said, you remember, this proves that all is vanity, all terrestrial goods, and that only the work of God holds out, and so on and so on. It is sad to observe how, in the last years, my ex-teacher and good friend Jacqueline Miller got more and more engaged in this propaganda. There should be no surprise that the financial meltdown, the ongoing one, also propelled Miller to intervene in such a constructing way to prevent panic. This is a quote from Miller's comment on financial meltdown. I think it was published, I don't know, in Le Figaro or Le Poin. You can find it on the web. Quote from Miller. The financial universe is an architecture made of fictions, and its keystone is what Lacan called a subject supposed to know, to know why and how. Who plays this part? The concept of authorities from where sometimes a voice is detached, Alan Greenspan, for example, in his time. The financial players base their behavior on this. The fictional and hyper-reflexive unit holds by the belief in the authorities, that is to say, through the transference to the subject supposed to know. If this subject falters, there is a crisis, a pulling apart of the foundations, which of course involves effects of panic. However, the financial subject supposed to know was already quite subdued because of deregulation. And this happened because the financial world believed in its infatuated delusion to be able to work things out without the function of the subject supposed to know. Firstly, the real estate assets become waste. Secondly, gradually cheat permits everything. Thirdly, there is a gigantic negative transference vis-à-vis the authorities. The electric shock of the Paulson-Bernanke plan angers the public. The crisis is one of trust, and it will last till the subject supposed to know is reconstructed. This will come in the long term by way of a new set of Bretton Woods Accords, a council enjoyed, enjoined to speak the truth about the truth. End of quote. You noticed Miller's reference to Greenspan, who effectively was the non-partisan subject to, supposed to know of the long period of economic relative growth from the Reagan era till the recent meltdown. When, on October 23rd, <coughs> last month, a month and a half ago, Greenspan was submitted to a congressional hearing. He considered some interesting points in answering critics who claimed that he encouraged the bubble mm. in housing prices by keeping interest rates too low for too long and that he failed to rein in the explosive growth of risky and often fraudulent mortgage lending. Here is the climactic, climactic moment of the Greenspan hearing. <coughs> Representative Henry Waxman chairman of the Oversight Committee, said, I quote, I'm going to interrupt you. The question I have for you is, you have an ideology. This is your statement. Quote, I do have an ideology, Greenspan said. 
My judgment is that free economic, free competitive markets are by far the unrivaled way to organize economies. We have tried regulation, none meaningfully work. End of quote. That was your quote. You have the authority to prevent irresponsible lending practices that led to the subprime mortgage crisis. You were advised to do so by many others, and now our whole economy is paying its price. Do you feel that your ideology pushed you to make decisions that you wish you had not made? End of quote. And here is Greenspan's answer. I found a flaw in the model that I perceive as the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, end of quote. In other words, Greenspan considered that when a once-in-a-century credit tsunami, as he called it, has engulfed financial markets, his free market ideology, shining regulation, was proved proven flawed. Later, Greenspan, Greenspan reiterated his shocked disbelief that financial companies failed to execute sufficient surveillance on their trading counterparties to prevent surging losses. Quote, those of us who have looked to the self-interest of leading institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself included, are in a state of shocked disbelief. End of quote. This last statement, I think, tells much more than it may appear. It indicates that Greenspan's mistake was to expect the lending institutions enlightened self-interest is to expect that this self-interest would have made them act more responsibly, more ethically, avoiding the short-term self-propelling cycle of wild speculations which sooner or later explodes in a bubble. In other words, his mistake was not factual concerning objective data or mechanisms, it concerned the ethical attitudes generated by market speculations. Greenspan's mistake was to act on the premise that market mechanisms themselves spontaneously generate the ethical attitude of <coughs> responsibility and trust, since it is in the long term self-interest of the participants themselves to act with responsibility and trust. Obviously, his mistake was not only and simply to underestimate the rationality of the market agents, that is to say their ability to resist the short-term temptations of wide speculative gains. What he forgot to include into the equation was the financial speculators' first <coughs> rational expectation that the risks are worth taking, since in the event of a financial collapse, they can count on the state to cover up their losses, which is exactly what happened, of course. But back to Miller. The message of his weird lines is clear. Wait patiently for the new subject supposed to know to emerge. Miller's position is here the one of pure liberal cynicism. We all know that subject supposed to know is a transferential illusion, but we know this as psychoanalysts. Why, in our public activity, we should promote the rise of a new subject supposed to know to control panic. Again, I find this a very sad position, which is people need an illusion. The only way that prevents panic is the illusion of security. You know, this is pure cynicism. Like, we know there is no big other, but people need a big other. So we should help those in power to construct a new big other to prevent panic. This is what I find so horrifying in it, how uh, the subjective position of enunciation 
of Miller is so automatically uh, uh, solidarity with those in power. The very perspective is the perspective of those in power, how to prevent panic, how to keep the situation under control. And the reply is, again, pure cynicism. We know it's a fake, but people need a fake which would help people to... Uh, we should help people to... Uh, to uh, we should help people to... to, uh, to uh, to, to, to accept the new fake, the new illusion. Okay, I don't want to lose time here with other Miller's incredibly primitive comments, for example, on Obama. He did a kind of a almost Jungian reading, undignified of a Lacanian. Obama, Obama won because, obviously, his sympathy there was Sarah Palin. He's one of those telegraphs on Sarah Palin. Three weeks before elections, he already wrote Obama off. He said, Sarah Palin is in. He is a new post-feminist woman with bitchy feminine irony, undermining, making Obama seem impotent, weak, and so on. Then, how to explain Obama's victory? He's, he resorted to Jungian argumentation, claiming that Obama cheated in the sense that he manipulated all the old religious messianic archetypes. That Obama didn't talk politics at all, but refer to this religious, I come to bring Savior, and that he posited himself as practically, this is my reading, as a Michael Jackson of politics. Neither white nor black, neither woman nor man. So he, he resuscitated all this religious mythology to be, which, with all my criticism about Obama. Incidentally, so that you will not think some people reproach me, how can you be a leftist and write about enthusiasm about Obama? No, the enthusiasm was just, and I still think this is a great event. I spoke recently on phobic Alain Badiou, and who told me, we can make fun of Americans, but in Europe we wouldn't be able to, to elect somebody like Obama, which means for the Germans to elect a Turk as a president or whatever, no? For you, even an, uh, okay, an Irish guy, maybe. <laughs> not, an, not an Indian, <laughs> So, uh, that's still a great thing. But I think, if you ask me, Obama will turn out to be the greatest uh, liberal conservative president, the way it looks now. He will, bring, he will be the best thing that can happen to the American establishment. But still, I don't compromise things here. Something happened, which is why what I quoted in my text, which was seen published on the online by London Review of Books, I can even tell you the name he authorized me. I didn't invent it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't myself when I referred to a leftist, radical leftist friend of mine who was crying for hours. It was Ed Kadava, the, the Princeton Derrida and Kostoputit, who told me that he has no illusions. He knew Obama Made all the, but he knew nonetheless, he told me he cried all the night and so on. <laughs> no, I understand that. I mean, let's not be ashamed of it. It was an authentic, great event. Why? Because an event is when, how should I put it, the limits of the possible somehow were displaced. It's incredible how many people, even my friends secretly said, you know, this fear of how you call that effect when people... Publicly, they say, of course, Obama, but privately, my God, a nigger will not rule me, you know. Like, they were even, they, they all, we all had this skepticism, and it's nice. These are truly sublime moments when we intellectuals are proven to be too cynical, distrusting people, and that at least a little bit people can nicely, surpri uh, nicely surprise you. But, uh, so, back to ideology. 
here, my main line, and economy. The reason I find this crisis meltdown so instructive is that it effectively confronted us at its purest, as it were, with the problem, which is ideology today. Let me quote Alain Badiou, his short comment on crisis published in a letter to Le Monde. Quote, one demands absolutely from ordinary citizens to understand that it is not possible to fill in the financial gap of the social security, but that without counting the billions, one should fill in the gap of the banks. End of quote. And I think one should generalize this by this statement. When we fight AIDS, hunger, lack of water, global warming, and so on, although we recognize the urgency of these problems, there is always time to reflect, to postpone decisions. Remember how the main conclusion of the last meeting of the superpower leaders in Bali about ecology was failed as a success why? Because they concluded to meet again in two years to continue. <laughs> but did you notice how, in contrast to all this, you know, whenever there is ecological crisis, poverty, they say, oh, it's difficult, it's a complex problem, there is time to reflect, to double-check it, but here it was an absolute emergency. When banks need money, no problem. What Americans did, did you notice, is they practically introduced a kind of political emergency state. There was a vote first vote where the measures were rejected and basically the ruling elite concluded no this was the wrong vote so they practically introduced a kind of a extraordinary measure saying basically the message was fuck off now it's for the real it's the wrong comedy we don't have time we have to make the right decision with all the twisting of arms in which all including Obama participated and so on uh, so the panic was here absolute here, it was really, uh, you know, tens of millions may be dying. In Congo, there may be a tragedy, whatever. We have time. Here, ah, when it's the question of banks, the, the urgency is absolute. And let us also not forget that the sublimely enormous sum of money, and I mean here sublime in the precise Kantian sense, because it, somewhere, I don't know, okay, maybe I'm, but I'm definitely not rich, uh, Richard, there's some of you, although I think there are some of you <laughs> You know, for us, where does it become meaningless? Somehow I can think in millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, but when you go above, like, 700 billions, it's sublime in the sense of it doesn't really mean anything, no? But uh, as some, not leftists, but like, not right-wing, uh, uh, in economists like Joseph Stiglitz put it very nicely the point of this throwing money wasn't that economically it makes real sense it was to, it was to re-establish trust I love this paradox how, and Stiglitz even says that because of this even if economically it makes no sense it may work because what matters is not does it have economic sense but that people that it will restore people's trust and this brings us to ideology today, because trust is a fundamental ideological category. Again, this proves that I was right when I claimed capital is today's real. Hunger, AIDS, reality. With reality you are pragmatic, you negotiate, yes, maybe we should give money for this, will it be well spent, what to do? But when you encounter the real, there is no time to negotiate. You do it. So compare the 700 
billions destined to stabilize the banking system by the US alone to the fact that of 22 billions pledged by richer nations to help poorer nations agriculture in this year of food crisis only 2.2 billions have been made have been made available and the blame for this food crisis cannot be put on the usual suspects the favored usual suspects of the uh, of our media corruption, inefficiency, state interventionism of the third world countries, and so on and so on. On the contrary, this food crisis is directly dependent on the globalization of agriculture. Now you will say, if you are uh, center liberal, what leftist crap shit am I saying to you? <laughs> Maybe, but the leftist on whom I'm referring here is Bill Clinton. And I think one should use even Bill Clinton, anyone when he tells the truth. I'm referring here to a not bad text by Clinton. It's his comment as reported by Associated Press on October 23rd of this year. Clinton's comment on the global food crisis at the United Nations gathering marking World Food Day. Here is already the title of Clinton's report, which is interesting. We blew it on global food. And the essence of Clinton's speech was that today's global food crisis shows how, quote, he was honest enough, we all blew it, including me when I was president, end of quote, by treating food crops as commodities instead of as a vital right of the world's poor. Words he used. Clinton was very clear in putting blame not on individual states or governments, but on the long-term global Western policy imposed by the United States European Union and enacted for decades by the World Bank, International Monetary Fund and other international institutions. This policy pressed African and Asian countries into dropping government subsidies for fertilizer, improved seed and other farm inputs, thus opening up the way for the best land to be used for export crops and for ruining the country's food self-sufficiency. The result of such structural adjustments was the integration of local agriculture into global economy. While crops were exported, farmers thrown out of their land were pushed into slums, available for outsourced sweatshops, and countries had to rely more and more on the imported food. In this way, third world countries are kept in post-colonial dependence and made more and more vulnerable to market fluctuations. The skyrocketing of grain prices, also caused by the use of crops for biofuels in the last years, already caused starvation in countries from Haiti to Ethiopia, as we know. And there is, recently, this was reported in the media, I thought, I'm slowly becoming a believer into bourgeois liberal media, in the sense that, no, in a quite naive sense that, in a way, everything is said there. You just really have to read it. For example, I read some pretty horrible news which was reported in the media, but nobody even reacted to it. Of this, what is really happening now on the international agricultural market? The exact opposite of what Clinton is advocating. That is to say, major international corporations and governments try to compensate for shortages of arable land in their own countries by setting up massive industrial farms abroad. For example, now, 
two, three weeks ago, Daewoo Logistics from South Korea negotiated a 99 years lease on around 3.2 million acres of farmland in Madagascar. It's to cut a long story short, half of Madagascar's arable land. It will be used strictly for export, uh, three quarters corn for biofuels, one quarter palm oil. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I read this, I think, in Time magazine. Again, no leftist propaganda, if you are afraid of it. Uh, they say that also, for example, British Sun Biofuels is buying land in Ethiopia, Mozambique, and Tanzania. The first two, at least according to the media, identified as lands with hunger, and so on and so on. So again, we are getting this, this paradox of exactly the opposite. The developed countries are confronting food crisis by impoverishing even more the third-world countries by way of buying land there and growing it for export and so on and so on. So again, Clinton, back to Clinton, Clinton was right to say that quote from Clinton, food is not a commodity like others. We should go back to a policy of maximum food self-sufficiency. It is crazy for us to think we can develop countries around the world without increasing their ability to feed themselves. End of quote. There are nonetheless, I think, two things to add to Bill Clinton. <laughs> First, one should note how while imposing the globalization of agriculture on the third world countries, the developed Western countries are taking great care of maintaining their own food self-sufficiency. Recall, for example, that in European Union, everybody knows that the financial support of our own farmers uh, uh, takes more than half of the entire European Union budget. So we are already cheating here while advising third world countries, no food self-sufficiency, open yourself to the market. We are doing exactly the opposite. This is why the old phrase by Marx, you know, when a communist manifesto, he says, you accuse us of communism but for the ruling elite, you already have communism. It's here it's the same, and incidentally, it's the same also, you know, with poor Republicans who were shocked at this plan to spend 700 billion for, uh, to, to help banks. They said, but this is socialism. But this was always the system. Capitalism always meant communism for the ruling class itself. <laughs> Nothing new in that. Uh, uh, the second thing to reproach is that the list of products and things which are not, as Clinton put it, commodities like others, is much longer. So, you know, I will proceed here as a cynical, ironical leftist by agreeing. Yeah, yeah, commodity production is okay, just we should be aware that there are maybe some things which shouldn't be totally treated like commodities. Like, we agree with Bill Clinton, food, then everyone would agree, defense, my God, every patriot would agree that defense cannot be treated as a commodity. Then, water, everybody would agree, energy, environment, culture, education, health. So, again, by totally being pro-market, I would say, just take into account all these exceptions, so that the end, what remains, what should be definitely left to market forces, maybe those cheap toys made in There I'm totally pro-capitalist. market forces. So now, let me conclude with a little bit of more theory. 
uh, what the present situation makes me aware of is that we should distinguish two different modes of ideological mystification. They should not be confused. On the one hand, the liberal democratic, I call it, in that name, just to identify it, don't take uh, designation to see, and the other hand, other hand, the fascist one. The first ideological mystification concerns false universality. For example, the subject advocates freedom equality, not being aware of implicit qualifications, which, in their very form, constrain the scope of universal freedom equality and so on. You know, freedom equality, but implicitly you constrain it, limit it to certain groups, uh, only men, only, uh, only rich men, only white men, and so on. <coughs> the second mystification, the fascist one, typically targeting the Jews, concerns the false identification of the antagonism and of the enemy. Class struggle is displaced onto the struggle against the Jews, so that the popular rage at being exploited is directed redirected from capitalist relations as such to the Jewish plot, to the Jews. So to put it in naive hermeneutic terms, in the first case, liberal democratic ideology, when we say freedom and equality, we really mean freedom of trade, equality in front of the law, and so on and so on. While in the second case, when we say Jews are the cause of our misery, we really mean big capital is the cause of our misery. We just displace it onto Jews. But the asymmetry is clear. To put it again in naive terms, in the first case, the good explicit content, in the first case, liberal democratic ideology, because you put it naively, I'm consciously naive here, the explicit content is good. There is nothing bad about equality, human rights in themselves. Uh, so the good explicit content, freedom equality, covers up the bad implicit content, class and other privileges and so on. While in the second case, the fascist anti-Semitism, the bad explicit content, for us at least, anti-Semitism of course, as every racism is bad, covers up the good implicit content, class struggle, hatred of exploitation. You know, so it's exactly the opposite. Now comes the problem. For anyone versed in psychoanalytic theory, the inner structure of the two ideological mystifications is that of the couple symptom fetish. The implicit limitations are the symptoms of liberal egalitarianism. Liberal egalitarianism, but this how egalitarian ideology can cover up real class differences, this is the symptomatic point, the symptomatic exception. Why Jew is the fetish of the anti-Semitic fascists, as it were, you know, like Freud used this term, fetish is the last thing you see before seeing a heart that the woman has no penis. It's the last thing the subject sees before seeing the class struggle. <laughs> you focus on that. This asymmetry has crucial consequences for the critical ideological process of demystification. Now I come to a problem. Apropos liberal egalitarianism, it is not enough to make the old Marxist point about the gap between the ideological appearance of the universal legal form and the particular interests that effectively sustain it. As is so common among politically correct critics on the left who see only this. The problem is that the form, this universal form, equality, freedom, 
is never a mere form. It involves a dynamic of its own which leaves traces in the materiality of social life. As we all know, even if at the beginning equality was just equality for the white man, really, it exploded. No, then William said, Mary Wollstonecraft, why not us? Black said to Saint Louverture, why not us? And so on. Uh, which means that the interpretive demystification is here relatively easy. It is relatively easy. I will put it now consciously in very naive terms. It is relatively easy to convince an honest liberal democrat, wait a minute, don't you see that you are cheating? Don't you see that you are implicitly excluding these, those, and so on, and so on? The main alternative of liberals is then to withdraw into cynicism, to say, we know egalitarianism is a possible dream, but... So let's pretend we play the game, accepting some silently, some limitations. But in the case, what worries me is that in the case of the right-wing populism, where the enemy is usually constructed along the lines of the figure of the Jew, even if it is not the Jew, the interpretive demystification is much more difficult. You know, it's, not, it's much easier to convince a liberal democrat who claims universal freedom equality, but you see, you are cheating, you are industry excluding, then to convince a fascist who genuinely, why not, cares about exploitation, but who thinks it's basically Jews who are exploiting us. And incidentally, maybe I'm a little bit of too optimist here, but there was one uh, uh, good thing, nonetheless, still now, fingers crossed, about the recent meltdown is that at least I am not aware that the Jews were blamed for it. No? I mean, even talking frankly with my Jews, Jewish friends, with them I'm always openly anti-Semitic. How is it that nobody got you? How you Jews treat honest Americans squeezing out of them 700 billion and so on? And they told me they were themselves surprised. Like, Jews could be said to be so ah, but you know, then they gave me the true reason, which is that. Jews largely lost control in the last decades over the banking system in the United States. Now it's a totally different... But, okay, but to go on. Uh, why uh, to convince uh, uh, fascist populists, again, sincerely worrying about exploitation, that you talk about the Jews, but it's wrong, don't you see? The Jew, uh, as already August Bebel put it, anti-Semitism is the... Uh, Anti-capital is the socialism of the idiots, of the poor. No? That, uh, 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 don't you see that when you protest against exploitation and when you point out the Jew is an enemy, Jew is just a false fetish metaphor, what you are really attacking is capitalist exploitation and so on and so on. This step is, for theoretical reasons and practice shows, much more difficult to make. It's typical how, and it's a very sad thing, which shows how deeply this fetishist mode of ideology is ingrained into our functioning. How, for example, if you look at the history, Germany of the 30s, France of the 80s, 90s, as it were, the transference, transfer, the move of ex-leftist communists towards the right populism, ex-communists becoming fascist populists, goes much easier than the opposite movements. Like we can see with Le Pen how, I don't know, one third of his voters are ex-communists in France and so on. 
The, the opposite movement is a much, the opposite gesture is a much more, uh, is a much more, uh, is a much more difficult one. I think this concerns also, in psychoanalytic terms, at least the question of pleasure. You know, you are dissatisfied with your symptoms, but you enjoy your fetish. Like, uh, how should I put it? Uh, libidinally, there is no profit in abandoning Jew. Jew as, or somebody constructed as a Jew as the, as the enemy. With regard to today's situation of ideological struggle, this means that we should view with uh, a little bit of suspicion, I claim, those who, uh, <coughs> how should I put it, those who automatically read as our allies, objectively our allies, as it were, all those who, no matter how conservatively religious their ideology is, are somehow anti-American, anti-Western imperialism, and so on and so on. I mean, while I totally support, uh, I'm accused, my God, by that cherry guy for being anti-Semitic for this, but I totally support Palestinian struggle, and so on and so on, I nonetheless think that, that one should return to something which, again, here comes the better part of Moshe Postel. He noticed a shift where I think he was right. That is a kind of a sad symptom on the left. He said that till around 20, 30 years ago, whenever the left was supporting Western left, some third world revolutionaries, this support was always qualified, not by human rights and so on, <clears throat> but by a minimal check up with the program. It wasn't enough to be just against your enemy. You had to have a program which was minimally, I don't know, progressive, egalitarian, however you put it. But he claims in the last 20, 30 years, it is that as if it is enough just to be, let's say, anti-American, and then somehow, objectively, you are, you are ours. Which is why he's right to notice how the left is not enough preoccupied with what, and I learned this, they told me this, my Palestinian friends, this decline of the secular left in the Arab countries. For example, when people were, I think this was, when people told, you know, I got all got the, the bad press for saying anti-Iraq war demonstrations were flawed. Uh, I participated in them, so it was more a tragic statement. But nonetheless, one thing was done wrongly there. Uh, it, it would have helped a lot, a lot even to convince many more people if the tragedy of the left was that the idea was uh, the West, this, uh, uh, called George Galloway position basically, no? the West will attack Iraqi people, what can we do? The Iraqi boss is now Saddam, so we must defend Iraq in total, the way it is now. Don't you think it would have been very helpful to find some leftists, and they still were there, leftist Iraqis who were anti-Saddam and at the same time anti-American? They would have been a key, I claim. The case would have been much more convinced to go on the stage of London some who were victims of Saddam and so on, but who at the same time would have been anti-American and would have made the crucial argument. 
which is not Saddam attacks America so we defend Saddam, but wait a minute, America saved two, three times Saddam, supported him, and so on and so on. This would have been much more efficient. So again, this logic of your negative position is enough. Who is your enemy? The, for me, this is why I have some problems with this, with the position of that French, so-called, ironically, uh, the advocate of terror, Jacques Vergès. He, I think, <coughs> embodies the extreme of this position. My enemy's enemy is my ally, so don't ask any questions. Which is why, for him, being pro... But this is... What is God telling me? This is... Uh, <laughs> you know that wonderful quote that I quote? I quote this quote for the uh, uh, owner of this phone. I'm talking Israel. You know that... Uh, American president, uh, I don't know, is Nixon and Rabin or whoever, Peggy, doesn't matter. Visit Israel and sits there on the, uh, on the prime minister's table, apart from the usual ordinary phones and red phone, super, also a blue phone. And what is this blue phone? They say, God, we can call God. <laughs> then Clinton, I think it was Returns Furious Phone, no, but they have it, why don't I have it? <laughs> order CIA or FBI, some technical, they deliver the phones. So you can call God. He calls God, but looks at the bill, it's horrible. No, like, you know, a million dollar a minute. Or <laughs> so furious, he calls Israel. Like, we are giving you all this money, and you spend it on this. He knows the Israeli answer. For us, Jews, it's a local coin. He, on behalf of his unconditionally pro-Arab attitude, with what I have no problem, He's literally tried to buy, to make into an alliance with anyone from ex-Nazis, neo-Nazis, and so on, just insofar as, you know, anything goes. I think this is a catastrophic politics. Even in the sense of politics, not only in the sense of some kind of abstract uh, moralistic reasoning, how can you, even in the terms of political efficiency, it's catastrophic. And it really, he, again, he went he went to the end here. So again, I think that uh, more and more, I think that for me, this fact that no matter who comes good as a potential ally is rather an effect of... First, let me make one point clear. The problem for me here is not religion as such. There can be movements which are very fanatically religious, but play a very progressive role. The problem, so, the problem is the implicit ideological content, which can be religious or not. Like, uh, religion doesn't bother me. What does bother me is if a movement defines itself explicitly, not so much even as anti-Semitic as against European modernity. Well, the main catastrophe is designated as the French Revolution, modern egalitarianism, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, <coughs> here, I think that uh, the hope professed even by Badiou that some movement may appear conservative now, but this is only the first step. In the long term, they will see who the true enemy is, like not the Jews, but... Uh, American imperialism or whatever. I think it's a vain hope. I think that uh, it's the same hope as if, if we were to say in the 30s, late 30s, he, the main enemy is United States, 
American English imperialism, so let's join Hitler. Later Hitler will see that it's not really the Jews, but capitalism as such, and so on and so on. But this is a, a genuinely tragic predicament, I claim. Because at the same time, I know that, you know why? Because we, the left, if you count yourself as left, in short, we have to leave this paradox that in short terms we are again and again forced into coalitions with liberal democrats. Like when you fight racism, when you fight for women's rights, for gay rights, you cannot but make a coalition there. But in the long term, everything depends on making a coalition precisely with those who are, if they are politicized at all today, are politicized on the right-wing populist base. That's our tragedy. Which is why I think, again, with all the stupid things he is doing, people like Chavez are precious today. They are the only ones who try to repoliticize ordinary people and so on. Okay, so since I went too long, the usual thing happened. The key part will have to stay out, so if you allow me two, three minutes just to conclude and to uh, make my point. Now, what I wanted to do is to go into critique of political economy. Why do we need it today? The title of my talk refers to something noted by my good friend who wrote that wonderful book, Transcritique, whom I quote a lot, Kotlin Karatani, who said that uh, in Marx, Marx began when he was young with critique of religion. You know, when he says the critique of religion is the beginning of every critique. Then he went on, say, ideology, ended with critique of economy, political economy. But then, the topic of fetishism means that what you find at the end is, again, a form of religion, but religion, theology, inherent to, capitalis to capitalism itself. Not as an abstract ideology, but in uh, religious content, belief, inherent to the very core of really existing, functioning capitalism. And this is why, I claim, we need this by this, I mean critique of political economy, which is at the same time fully aware not only of economy as objective science, but of all these subjective fetishes, illusions, etc., which has to be operative for the capitalist economy to function. This is what we need today. We need, it's not a choice, either critique of religion or critique, but critique of religion, which is in the very focus of political economy, and here I think we can use, we forgive him, his Zionism, Moise Postone, who again is one of the few who did his task. Let me just present briefly his position. It's a wonderful one. It's that Marx was a Marxist. If by Marxist we mean this vulgar economic determinism stuff, somewhere from German ideology to mid late 1850s. This is Marxist theory which passed into common knowledge as Marxism. Economic base, economic relations basically determine, you know, all this, how should I put it, pathetic, uh, pathetic materialism, most forcefully developed in, in German ideology. Our starting point is the production of real life, all ideological phantasmagoria and so on are generated by real life processes, are its ideological reflexes and so on and so on. But he claims, Postone, uh, and I get to agree with him that when Marx, after the failure of the First Great Revolution, returned to reading Hegel to understand properly critique of political economy, something clicked 
deeply changed there. And although we do get occasional residues, regressions, for example, the greatest one is, I think this, I never liked that much, the famous that forward, I think, to the introduction to the political economy, where Marx as it were, resumes his view. It's, I think, the worst of the worst simple evol evol historicist evolutionism. There are even other regressions all the time through. For example, in Capital and in Grundrisse, the, in Grundrisse, the very passage celebrated endlessly by Tony Negri, as Marx saw the future there. You know, the famous passages in, uh, you can get all this on the internet, uh, for, uh, from, uh, in, from Grundrisse, where Marx uh, developed the hypothesis of general intellect, this preponderance of uh, knowledge as a factor in production which makes meaningless uh, development, uh, sorry, ma ma makes, makes meaningless labor theory of value and so on and so on. So, first, you should notice how Mar Marx is. Here, I think that precisely this part that Negri totally mistreated, it should be discarded. And what people don't know is that if you closely read Grundrisse, it is discarded. It's just, you know, Grundrisse was a manuscript. Marx was trying to develop one line and then immediately never returned to it. And he was right. First, it's Marx as a technological determinist and its purest. Marx never even mentioned politics there. He simply claims bites the rise of the role of knowledge, and so on and so on, things will fall, fall apart. Second thing, much more dangerous, and this is basically the worst technocratic Marx. Uh, notice how when Marx speaks, talks about general intellect, he always uses the singular. All of a sudden, there is no society. There is humanity, he usually uses the term the arbiter, a worker, reduced to, he ironically used the term, controller, night watchman, who just observes the automatized system going on. One should link this to another weird ideological mistake by Marx. Chapter 4, I think it's 4 or 5, of Capital, which begins with this general definition of labor. Labor <coughs> as, you know, transformation of natural <coughs> and so on. I think it's ideology, it's a regression. You know why? Something very weird happens there at the level of content, if you read it. At the level of, sorry, abstraction. Marx says, I don't have time to quote, five minutes. Marx says there, just looking closely there, insofar as he observed concrete forms of labor, of course, it's always a particular social relation that determines it. Like every concrete historical form of labor happens within a certain social formation. But then Marx says, but if we observe labor abstractly, independently of all concrete social forms, we don't need society, we only get labor on worker on one side, the stuff on which he or she works on the other side. Now this is a very strange conclusion, wouldn't it be more logical to say, if we abstract from concrete society, we get so social form as such. I claim there is a deep ideological content here, because we should connect this to his technocratic vision, only there in Grundrisse, of communism as a general intellect. It is as if this uh, asocial, abstract essence of labor, whom you can imagine as, again, asocial, will be realized in communism. That's his purely technocratic vision there. But then, here comes, yes, 
Here comes the Toscom's wonderful result, which is that with capital and most of Grundrisse, the, the topic of Marx shifts radically. It's no longer this materialist obsession. It's, you know, I quote it all the time, you know what I mean, the uh, beginning of capital. It's no longer, the beginning is no longer real life and so on. It's commodity as a historical form, and then, as Marx put it, to penetrate from the surface, commodity is an ordinary object, to the, as Marx put it, theological niceties, metaphysical subtleties, and so on and so on. That is to say, the focus of Marx in Capital is not simply ideology versus reality, as I already repeated it often, it's reality, it's a commodity fetishism as ideology, theological dimension, which is found in the very heart of economic reality. It's the which is why, again, as many people noticed, reading Marx really closely, which is why it was so difficult for Marx to classify commodity fetishism. Like, is it ideology or not? Since it's an illusion, it should have been ideology. But interestingly enough, Marx never, never, never calls commodity fetishism ideology. Because it's too much part of economic base itself. Why is this important? So that's the first thing we should do today. To rehabilitate this post-Marxist Marx, if by Marxism we understand the standard economic place and so on, Marxism. Second thing, and here I again agree with Boston, this is what bothered me for a long time. What to do with so-called, unfortunately, labor theory of value? Marx there commits the same error of abstraction, but I think he is right there. You know what's the problem? When he says, the very first chapter of Capital, that if you look at commodities, their concrete properties account for their use value. But if you abstract from concrete properties and observe commodity as an abstract object, the only thing that remains is what all commodities have in common, which is being the products of human labor. Sorry, this appears as a clear logical mistake, because if you abstract from concrete use value, then what remains is clearly the abstract form of use value, the abstract property of being useful. In the, in the same way that if you abstract from concrete labor, the only thing that remains is abstract labor, and so on and so on. But why is Marx here right? Poston gave, gave the best explanation. Because it, this Marxist basic distinction between two forms of labor, concrete labor, which concrete work which provides <coughs> the use value of a commodity, and what Marx calls abstract labor, the source of value, that it's not really a question of abstraction, but it's a question of something totally different. In capitalism, and this is the uniqueness of capitalism, why can we get personal freedom and so on and so on? We get personal freedom because the fundamental social relations of domination are already inscribed into the structure of the production process, into la labor process itself. For Poston, it is right point is that abstract labor does not mean simply abstraction of labor. It means labor in its function, not as producing use value categories, but labor as the structuring principle of social life, social division, and so on, and so on. In other words, one can almost say that, could almost say that one should turn the terms around here. 
that it's what Mar Marx calls concrete labor, which is truly abstract, <coughs> in the sense that this is an abstraction. I directly work on an object to confer on it use value. This is abstract view. This always happens within a certain social totality. And this totality is, belongs to the, is what value is about. So abstract labor means, as Poston puts it very nicely, that in other pre-capitalist formations, the relations of domination were directly enacted through interpersonal relations and were in this sense relatively independent from production. Like, you can have a farmer, then there was a feudal lord took part of the product for him, then there was a war, a war, another feudal lord came, took the money of him, but the production went on. You know what this means? The exploitation was assured through extra economic means. While in capitalism, it is there in economy, which is why we need to... Uh, ah, you want now not me to tell the truth, no? <laughs> what I want, just to conclude, what I'm simply saying is that uh, in this way, we can see why Marx claims that the labor is the sole source of value. The point is not some primitive primitive pseudo-medieval ontology where, for some mystical reasons, only value, uh, only human labor counts as the source of value. It concerns labor as a social phenomenon. This is why only labor, because labor, this is what is unique of capitalism, that again, social divisions, hierarchy, are already there, outside in the production process, which is why they can be subtracted from interpersonal relations, we can be free and so on and so on. And this, again, we need more than ever today. So, without being able to do it, I think this is what we need more than ever today, just because look exactly in this moment when, and that was the point of my talk, when uh, ideological struggle is harsher than ever. Some naive leftists thought, too, oh, economic crisis, perfect. Now, people will start to read Marx. They were enthusiastic to the level of intellectual orgasm. I got emails from them. Do you know that the sense of Marx went five times up and so on? I said, nice, but do you also know how brutally the recent meltdown is already used to reassert the most brutal ideological legitimization? For example, a week ago, there was, uh, even less, there was a terrifying uh, co-ed piece in New York Times defending, you know, they have now this problem, what to do with General Motors, no? Let it go bankrupt or not. And it openly says, yes, we should think the unthinkable. See, the, the limits of what is thinkable are changing. And they say that it would help to make General Motors a smaller, leaner, meaner, more adapted to the market company, but then they cannot resist in the, towards the end of this short piece to show their true cards. They openly say the main game will be that if a company goes bankrupt, those who will manage it will have the right to, and they use explicitly these brutal words, immediately, unconditionally reject, invalidate, all the deals with trade unions concerning security uh, and so on and so on. So the crisis is already used to, 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 to fire people. They want to break the last remainders of trade unions and so on and so on and so on. So my point is simply that now, more than ever, 
as in every moment of crisis, we need we need intellectual work, we need struggle, and so on. Because again, crisis, this we can learn from my ex-friend Ernesto Laclau. I agree with him that crisis means just the ruling hegemony has disintegrated. And the situation is open. And who knows who will win? We know that. Out of a crisis in Germany, there were stronger communists, but Hitler was even stronger, and so on, and so on. Now the battle is going on. Will this economic man be used just to not only just to reassert capitalism but to make it even more brutal, efficient and so on which I think in all probability it will happen or will we be able to make our point, now we are needed more than ever, I'm sorry for this that I didn't go more into theory but as always everything comes out of my books I don't know why you are so stupid to come here. <laughs> everything is in my books thank you very much short five minutes <laughs> from uh, Slavoj's... Uh, you again impose this brutal uh, anthropocentric, Eurocentric notion of linear time. Which <laughs> I fight all my life. So who is speaking about totalitarianism? I don't speak about it, I practice it, I am. <laughs>